0: If you have your Bible, turn to the book of Luke chapter one, gospel of Luke chapter one. We are in a Advent series that we've been in for, uh, this is week two, and we're walking through the Christmas story. We're we're walking through the Christmas story according to Luke and looking at his um, account of Jesus's birth. And we're going to pick up right where we left off last week. And so we're going to pick up in verse 39 uh, this week while you're turning there. Uh, I talked last week about how much I love the Christmas traditions, uh, but there is one Christmas tradition that I don't love, okay? And if, if you're a parent with young kids, you understand what I'm talking about. But for whatever reason, our kids' biological clocks, their, their, their sleep routines go absolutely haywire Christmas morning, amen? amen? I don't know why, maybe it's God's punishment and judgment on our lives, but 5 a.m. Christmas morning when you have young kids, after you've done this sprint all month of December to get ready for Christmas and you've had, uh, you've had events to go to, your kids have had 73 different dress-up days at school that you've had to find outfits for, and you've had to bake and cook and go to this party and that party and, and do this event and that event, and you finally made it to Christmas Day, which is supposed to be the finish line this day of rest, and all you want is to sleep. 5 a.m. comes mom, mom, it's Christmas. Every, now, some of you are in a different stage of life than I am. You remember those days, but you don't deal with those days anymore, do you? Right, you're looking at us with a, just a casual smirk, just loving that we're enjoying this season of life right now. Maybe you have teenagers and you have to wake them up. You're like, well, it's almost lunchtime. I guess they should open their presents, Right. Or, or maybe you're an empty nester and Christmas is yours to do what you want with. You go to your kid's house and let them rustle around while you're waited on and, and, and just enjoy the, the scenery. But in, in this phase with young kids, there's no rest for the weary. And that's okay. And Christmas morning has like a there's, a, there's a routine to it, there's a, a flow to it. And in our home, it's, it's the same every year. The kids, uh, once we allow them into the living room to see the presents that have shown up over, under the tree overnight, uh, there's this moment of awe, right? And that little, it's, it's a very short moment, uh, but that moment when your kids just take in all that is in there, they, they see the, the presence, maybe maybe there's something, if, I don't know if you've, your family, if Santa wraps everything, I don't know how that works in your family, uh, but maybe they see something that they've, wanted and they it under the tree and they just stand back and take it all in. And their face lights up and there's joy. And that's the moment, right, that we work for and we hope for and wait for. Uh, but then there's a response to that moment, isn't it? And there's just like this chaos that ensues as they just attack the piles of presents and you have to do everything you can to hold them back from destroying your home. And uh, that's, there, there's this moment and there's a response to the Christmas morning And it varies based on what life stage you're in. And as we're going to talk about Jesus and his arrival this morning, uh, my hope is that we look at our response to Jesus, to to him arriving on the scene, to the, the moment that everyone has been waiting for throughout history. It happens. Jesus comes. The Messiah that was promised appears. And we're going to see in our text today how people respond to that. And hopefully there's a lesson for us in how we too ought to respond to the arrival of Jesus. So, Luke chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 39 and read through verse 50, 56. Luke 1, 39 reads this. It says, In those days Mary arose, and she went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And so Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of Jesus. We thank you for this window into the hearts and minds of these women, in particular, who were given this incredible gift of being used by you to bring about your Messiah. We thank you for Mary, her willingness to have her whole life turned upside down for the sake of bringing the Lord into the world. We thank you for Elizabeth, who carried and delivered John, who would go on to become John the Baptist, who would prepare the way for the Lord. We thank you for the life that those two children ended up living. John faithfully proclaiming Jesus and pointing people to Jesus, and then the Lord living a perfect life in our place, ultimately dying on a cross then being raised again. And now your word tells us sitting in heaven, interceding on our behalf. We, what a gift that we have such a Lord, such a Savior, such a God who would love us enough to send his son for us. As we dive into this text this morning, would you encourage us with it? Would you draw us near to you with it, God? And would you help us to respond to the truth that you have sent your son to die on a cross for us? We love you, Lord. Guide our time, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's, let me catch you up from last week and kind of summarize what's, what's happened uh, thus far. Last week, we looked at the birth announcement that the angel Gabriel makes To Mary, and so Gabriel shows up uh, to to this young girl who is, uh, uh, in our culture, we would call her engaged, but maybe a little bit more than that, but not married to Joseph. And Gabriel shows up and says, "Hey, I got some good news for you. Uh, You are pregnant." And she goes, "That's a problem because I know how that works, and that hasn't happened. And so, you know, what am I, what am I going to do with that?" And he says, "Well, here's the deal. You're pregnant uh, by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has overshadowed you." the 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 text says. And he goes on, Gabriel goes on to explain that you're going to give birth, Mary, to the Messiah, to the Son of God, the text says. Mary is obviously overcome with this news, with the emotion, first of all, of meeting an angel. That's kind of wild. But then hearing that she's going to give birth to the Savior of the world. And we talked about also last week how that birth announcement was different than the birth announcement to uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah. Uh, these, are, these are Mary's likely cousins uh, or relatives of some Uh, sort. And they've been told that in Elizabeth's old age, she was past childbearing age, but in her old age, she was going to give birth too. And she was going to give birth uh, to someone who would become uh, basically the forerunner for Jesus, the, the person who would go before Jesus and prepare the way in Israel for Jesus's arrival. Well, as soon as Mary got the news that she was pregnant with the Savior, and Gabriel had also told her that her cousin Elizabeth was pregnant and six months along. As soon as she got the news, Mary, it says in our text this morning, what we read in verse 39 is Mary got up and took off running. Uh, I don't know if she literally got up running, but it says she went with haste into the hill country to the town of Judah. So she left. She went to go see her cousin Elizabeth, who she just found out uh, is, is pregnant. And as she does, she walks into the room and this incredible scene happens. There's just this incredible uh, move of the Holy Spirit amongst everybody, really, that's in the room. And Elizabeth, on seeing Mary, is filled with the Holy Spirit in a unique and special way and, and prophesies is really what's happening here. And she says "Bless." she blesses Mary for, for, for the, the gift that she has in carrying Jesus. She blesses Mary for her obedience and faith in that. Uh, she knows without Mary telling her who Mary is carrying, she knows she's carrying the Lord Jesus. And, and she worships as a result of that. She blesses Mary as a result of that. While this is going on, John in Elizabeth's womb starts kicking and jumping around and dancing around. And again, with some insight from the Holy Spirit, uh, Elizabeth says, hey, John knew that Jesus had showed up even in utero, and he started getting excited about it and started being pumped about it. After all of this, Mary takes all of this in, and she responds, it says, in worship in verse 46. It says, Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And she goes on verse after verse after verse with this song of praise. This a poem, this worship, it, it looks like you could take it right here out of the Gospel of Luke and stick it in the Psalms, and nobody would even notice that it was out of place, right? It's, it's a praise that just explodes out of Mary in this moment. This praise song that Mary offers, it has two parts to it. You don't care about this, but it's called the Magnificate. It's kind of the official name for it. You've maybe heard songs using that word. That's what it's called. But there's two parts to the Magnificate. There's two parts to this song that Mary sings. The first part is, is her worshiping God. It's just a spontaneous worship. It says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, She's recognizing what God has done and the miracle of what God has done, and she worships for it. But then she turns to testifying to what God has done. Starts talking about how God has done great things, how he's holy, how he's merciful, how he's shown strength, how he's scattered the proud and lifted up the humble, how he's filled the hungry and sent away the rich empty, and how he's helped Israel, how he's been merciful, how he's been faithful to keep his promises. She just begins to testify to all that God has done, who God is, his character. And in this passage, in this text, there's a progression that happens. You see, all of this starts with Mary and Elizabeth believing what Gabriel told them, believing that Jesus really is and really would be The Son of God and the Messiah. Once they came to grips with that, once they decided Jesus is who Gabriel is saying he is, their response was worship and proclamation, or said a different way, adoration and proclamation. Those are the two responses to who Jesus is adoration and proclamation. You see this pattern throughout Scripture. You can look, you can turn to almost any page and narrative in, in, in the New Testament and you can find people who meet Jesus or find out who Jesus is, and their response to that when they believe in Jesus is first worship or adoration and then proclamation or just telling other people about it. Once you notice that you start seeing it everywhere, you turn, people who met Jesus on the streets, uh, they, they worshiped him and then they wanted to go tell other people about him. In fact, many times Jesus had to say, hey, hey, I don't want you to tell quite yet. It's too soon for you to jump to that step. Throughout the, gospel, uh, the Gospels, you see all of that. You see it in the book of Acts, too. As, as people come to faith in Jesus, they're eager to worship God and tell other people about him. So in this text, we have three movement, movements, belief, adoration, and Proclamation. And I want to submit to you that those should be our responses to Jesus as well. And so the main idea this morning, if if that's important, you need to to write it down for notes, is this, is that belief in the incarnation should lead us to adoration and proclamation. Belief in the incarnation, which when I I use that word incarnation, just means Jesus is coming to earth, God leaving heaven, putting on flesh. That's what theologians call the incarnation. Believing that that happened should lead us to adoration and and proclamation. We should worship God for doing that, and we should tell others about it. Belief, adoration, and proclamation. And here's what I found, though, this morning, church. Is a lot of us get hung up on different ones of those, don't we? A lot of us struggle with any number of those. We, we may struggle with one or two. Some of us struggle with all three of them. Naturally, there's a link, and so you, it's, it's tough to do adoration and proclamation without belief. Some people do it. In fact, uh, there's probably, I'd guarantee you, there's people in the room this morning who, who do the adoration part. They come to worship. They just sang the songs with us right now. They'll, they'll do it in the next service, too. In every church in America, there's people like this. They do the singing part, and they do the, the telling part. They do their the Christian duty. These are the people that go through the religious motions, right? But deep down in their heart of hearts at the end of the day, they're like, I don't actually believe this. I go through the routines. I go through the, the habits of church. I have adoration, I have proclamation, but I don't have real belief. We know this is true because Jesus said this would happen. Matthew seven twenty two says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Jesus responded, I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so even this, we can see that we, we sometimes there can be a problem. You see this, these three items, this belief, this adoration, and this proclamation, they almost form like a three-legged stool, don't they? And if one leg isn't working, if one leg isn't strong, the whole Christian life kind of falls apart. You can have other combinations, right? You can have belief. And you can have proclamation without adoration, right? These are your worker bees in church. These are the people who believe that Jesus is who he says he is, died on a cross, and they're excited about it, and they're eager to do all the church ministry stuff that they can possibly do. But at the end of the day, their hearts are cold towards the Lord. There's no worship in there. There's no feeling. There's no heart in it. they know plenty of facts about God and are eager to tell anyone who will listen, but there's little personal connection with the Lord. Some people have a different combination. They have belief and they have adoration, but they don't have proclamation. They don't ever get to the point of telling someone else about Jesus or sharing their faith or inviting someone else to trust Jesus. This person loves God deeply, comes in here and sings with us with all of their heart, perhaps even reads their Bible throughout the week and spends time praying and loves God, loves learning about God, and yet all of that worship and belief never translate into telling others about Jesus. And so any one of these things, we get hung up on them. And I'm, when I say we, I don't mean we, in the, but I really mean you guys. I, I mean we like me too. We get hung up on some of these things. And I'm curious this morning for you, which one's hard today? Is it hard for you to believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Is it hard for you to worship Do you have trouble feeling any love or affection for the Lord? Or is it hard for you to proclaim? Is it hard for you to testify or to tell someone else who Jesus is and what he's done? This morning I want to look at each of those three things and maybe what hangs us up there and how we can respond to that. Because this year, this time of year, more than any time as we celebrate the birth of Jesus, his arrival... It's worth looking at our response. And so let's look quickly at belief. Do you struggle with belief this morning? There's different types of unbelief, right? There's different types of people, perhaps even in this room, I hope in this room, who don't believe this story that I just read you. They don't believe what we're going to read when we get to chapter 2, that Jesus was born in a manger. They don't believe the truth that Jesus lived a perfect life. They don't believe he died on a cross and rose from the dead. They don't believe it's true. Some, as I've mentioned earlier, are pretending they believe, but they don't believe, right? You're going through the religious motions. You grew up in church. Your family went to church. Your Aunt Flossie made you go to church, and so you, ha- you, you always, you go through the motions of church. This time of year, especially, maybe you're here. You don't usually come here, but your, your family expects you around Christmas time to come to church, so you're here. Going through the motions. It's what your spouse expects of you. It's what you've done since you were a kid, but at the end of the day, you're alone on your pillow. You're going, I don't think there's anything to that. Maybe that's you today. Others of you are not faking it. And honest in many ways, sometimes that's better. Just an open rejection. You, you, you don't believe that this is true. And you're not pretending that you do. Maybe you're here investigating if it's true. You're trying to decide. You're, you're looking into it, but you haven't made up your mind. Or maybe you were used to be in a place that you believed, but you've decided now that you do not believe. I want to tell you, I don't wherever you are, whether you're faking it, but you really don't believe or whether you just don't believe and you're acknowledging it, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here. At our church, we're filled with imperfect people. You hang around long enough, you'll find that out pretty quickly. But we are, while we're imperfect, we're filled with people who love Jesus and have been changed by Jesus, and we want you to know Jesus too. But we want you to know him on your own. We don't want you we don't want to necessarily force him down your throat. We want you to encounter Jesus. And I promise to the extent of my ability to make this a place where you can work out those questions, work out those doubts. Where we can have your questions answered and your issues addressed with compassion, with love, and with grace. What causes this though? What causes unbelief? Why don't we believe? In your own heart, what causes you to doubt? What causes you to question if this is really true? I think one of the first causes of unbelief is just a skepticism of the facts, right? I mean, can we acknowledge for a second, even the Christians in the room, can we acknowledge that this is a crazy story, amen? Like we're talking about God who created the universe, right? Uh, Coming down to earth, and not just on a chariot, like through a spaceship or something, like he's like, God's like, I know how I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there through the womb of a teenage girl who's never been married and never been with another person. This is crazy, right? Am I the only one that thinks it's crazy? I mean, we're used to it because we sing the songs and they, you know, they, 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 that we, we tell the story and we, we do it. It's, it seems normal, but take a step back with me. This is weird stuff. Amen. And then we, we, we go on to say that this God in the flesh lives a perfect life, never sinning. Again, going back to any of you who have had kids, the idea of kids never sinning is ludicrous. Amen? That not got more amens. And then this, this kid grows into be a man, and he's at the same time, the Bible tells us, A 100% God and 100% man, which that math doesn't even work, but we go, okay, we're doing that, right? And he goes all the way to the end of his life. And he's hung on a cross and killed in this excruciating manner. And this is what else we believe as Christians. That he was dead, literally heart stopped beating, clinically dead. If he was in a modern hospital, it would have been flatlined. They put him in a grave and left him there for days. And then, out of nowhere, his heart just started beating again. By just power and authority, he goes to this giant stone, just, hey, move. And he just strolled out of there alive. This is what we're asking you to believe. And some of you are going, that's too much. That's too far. I can't go that far with you. And so you're skeptical of the facts. And I get that. I understand. Others, perhaps the source of your unbelief isn't so much skepticism of the facts but it's your interactions with Jesus' followers that cause you problems. You could maybe believe some of this stuff. You're open to the idea of miracles and the supernatural happening and of a God existing and him wanting to interact with you. But all the people you meet who claim to know Jesus act nothing like him. And you go, maybe this isn't true after all, because none of those people have been changed by him. I met so many Christians who claim to love, but then they end up being the meanest people I've ever met. Maybe your parents drug you to church as a kid. They made you put on nice clothes, and they made you smile when you got here, and you got swatted if you acted up during the sermon. And they pretended to everyone at church like everything was awesome, like they were these pious, holy people. And then they went home, and you saw them at home, and you realized that that was all an act on Sunday morning. And their life the other six days of the week looked nothing like their life on Sunday mornings. And you go, these Christians, there's not anything to it. Maybe you've been hurt by the church in some way. The church didn't let you, the, it wasn't there for you when they needed to be. Or a leader let you down in some way. Or they weren't willing to walk with you through your doubt or your struggles. And you go, even the organization, the, the institution that it claims to represent Jesus doesn't look and act like him. I don't. I don't think there's anything to this. Let me encourage you this Christmas season with just just some, I want to give you some practical steps. If you're here and you're struggling with belief, I want to ask you to do one thing and one thing only. I want to encourage you to go looking for Jesus. Go looking for Jesus. Don't go looking at his followers. Don't go looking at the institutions that bear his name. Don't go looking at people who have failed to represent him. Don't go looking at people who have hurt you, but go look for Jesus. This Christmas season, as we talk about Jesus coming in a manger, can I encourage you to skip Christmas and go to Easter? Here's the deal. If we can settle one truth and one truth only, everything else in your faith journey will fall into place. If you can decide, I would encourage you to go and decide if a man named Jesus really was born, if he really did walk the earth, if he really did die, and then three days later, if he really did walk out of a grave alive. Because if Jesus really did rise from the dead, nothing else matters. In fact, our own Bible tells us that we are idiots. It doesn't use that language. That's the steward interpretation. But our Bible basically tells us that we are idiots for doing all of this if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Everything hinges on that. 1 Corinthians 15, 14 says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. It's a waste of time. if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. But if he was It's not that hard to believe in a virgin birth, is it? It's not that hard to believe in God creating the world. It's not that hard even to believe in Jonah and a whale we talked about a few weeks ago. Jesus really did rise from the dead. He can be trusted. Everything he taught matters, and he's worth giving your life to. If he didn't, nothing matters. And so I want to encourage you this season to go grab a Bible and read slowly through the Gospel of Mark, to say a prayer before you do. Now I'd encourage you to pray just, God, if you're real, reveal yourself to me. And then just read one chapter a day for the next 16 days. That'll get you to a couple days after Christmas. And go looking for Jesus and see if he doesn't meet you there. If you want someone to do that with you, come find me after the service. I'll be happy to walk through that with you. But what I would encourage you to not do is to not go looking for him. Don't ignore this. Don't ignore getting your, or your questions answered because you're afraid of what you will find. I think that happens a lot. We don't go looking for answers because we're afraid of what the answer is. Right now, my garage is a total disaster. Any amens there? Amen. Christmas decorations and the boxes from that, plus stuff left over from a move that we haven't figured out where to put yet. And you can barely walk in the garage. And so what I've started doing is going in the house through the front door (laughs) instead. If I don't see it, it's not real. What am I doing? I'm avoiding something because I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to put the boxes back in the attic. I don't want to find a place to put this and that and the other. I don't want to go through all the hassle of it. And so I'm just going a different direction. Don't do that with the Lord. The stakes are too high. Don't do that with the Lord. If, If what we're saying is true, if Jesus really is who he says he is, The benefits are mind-boggling. It's eternity in heaven. It's hope. It's peace. It's your sin forgiven. It's it's your shame taken. And if he really is who he says he is and who this Bible says he is, and we turn away from him, we don't encounter him, the consequences are mind-blowing as well. It's a life apart from the Lord, a life of pain and torture and sadness and despair for all eternity. The stakes are too high. Don't ignore this. If you're here and you're struggling with belief, go looking for Jesus. And when you find him, and if you find him, like us who know the Lord, the next response is adoration. There's something amazing about Jesus. When you encounter Jesus and you believe, the natural heart response to that is worship, isn't it? There's a reason we sing, oh, come, let us adore him this time of year. Because that's the response to Jesus showing up in these incredible circumstances that He showed up in. That's the response to Jesus living the life that He did. That's the response to Jesus dying on our place, dying on a cross in our place. This is why Mary's song in Luke 146 begins with worship. This is the response when she believes that this is true, that Jesus really is living inside her womb, and he's going to come back and save His people. She responds, "My soul magnifies the Lord." my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. This is a natural response. It's almost involuntary in many ways. Here we are living on this broken planet in broken homes with broken lives. Some of it has been broken by other people. Some of it we've broken. We've just messed it all up. People who constantly make mistakes, hurt others, ruin relationships, and just all of us generally are not awesome people, amen? Can we acknowledge that? Here we are. We live in this world. Our family's broken, politics broken, our behavior's broken, and everywhere we look, we just see brokenness. And into this world, God shows up in the form of a baby born in a manger. And he shows up for us. Quietly in an unimportant town a few miles from Jerusalem, God literally shows up. And he grows up and he lives a life That shows us what God is really like. Not what his followers say he's like, not how we imitate him, but Jesus shows us what God is really like. And then he's killed on a cross for it. And this death, the Bible teaches us, can cover all of our mistakes, all of our brokenness, all of our sin, all of our shame. Not only does his death do that, but then he rises from the dead and grants us victory over Satan, sin, and death, and the Bible makes all of these incredible claims and says that if we we'll believe that, all that God requires of us is belief, that all the promises of God's people and of the kingdom and of heaven belong to us. We get to spend eternity in heaven in joy and peace and happiness. How could we not respond in worship? How could we not? I've had the hymn, Joyful, Joyful We Adore Thee, on repeat this Christmas season because this thought, how could we not respond, just keeps coming up over and over and over again. And the hymn says, Joyful, joyful we adore you, God of glory, Lord of love, hearts unfold like flowers before you. Almost involuntary when we meet Jesus, our hearts unfold, opening to the sun above. Melt the clouds of sin and sadness. Drive the dark of doubt away. Giver of immortal gladness. Fill us with the light of day. When we sing these old Christmas songs, these old Christmas hymns, do me a favor, would you listen to what we're singing? What an incredible God we serve, who does all of this and more in Christ. What causes us to struggle with worship Some of us struggle to worship the Lord, to adore him, even though we've put our faith in him. And I'll tell you, one of the things that makes it tough to worship sometimes is the hurt and pain of life. This season is a joyful season for sure, but it's a hard season too, isn't it? It can be difficult. It can be painful. I wonder this morning, do you struggle to worship because you have unmet expectations for your life, things you thought might happen but just haven't happened for you? I wonder, has marriage been hard for you recently? Maybe you've suffered due to an illness or an injury, or perhaps you're grieving the loss of someone you love. When your circumstances aren't good, aren't happy, it's tough to worship, isn't it? I'll tell you, it's okay. It's okay to feel that way. It's not a guilt trip. But I want to encourage you that if you're hurting today, even if it doesn't feel like it, I want you to know that God loves you in the midst of your pain, and he's near to you even if you don't feel him. Sometimes our pain can make us forget the gift that Jesus is to us. Our pain can do it, but also time can do it, can't it? Have you ever experienced just the, just the passing of time making you forget how good Jesus is, how good the gospel is? There's something about time that makes God begin to seem smaller and smaller and smaller, and it makes us seem bigger and bigger and bigger. Something about the passage of time in the Christian life that makes God actually appear closer and closer, not as majestic and mighty as we thought he was, and it makes us seem more and more and more awesome than we used to think we are. And now what happens? The gap between us and God is so much smaller, which makes it a lot less of a miracle that Jesus bridged the gap, right? It just happens over time. We don't ever think about it, but it just happens. As a result, the grace that God has shown us in Jesus, it doesn't seem so amazing anymore. What do we do with this? How do we respond if we're having trouble worshiping this season? First, I would encourage you to imagine a life without Jesus. You think it's hard to worship right now when you've got Jesus? Imagine, worshiping, or imagine life going through what you're going through without Jesus. Imagine facing the hurt that you've experienced without the God of justice on your side. Imagine dealing with the consequences of your sin on your own. Imagine having no place to take your shame and guilt. Imagine through the, going through the hurt of your sickness without Jesus walking side by side. We live in a world where hurt and pain are inevitable, church. The Bible makes it clear that hurt and pain are coming for everyone. The Bible says that rain falls on the just and the unjust. Whether you're a good person, bad person, or somewhere in between, hard stuff is coming. But in his kindness, God says, I will be near to you in your pain. What a gift, what a hope that is. This should cause us to worship in the midst of our pain. I'd also encourage you to build habits in your life that help you turn your heart to the Lord. We're forgetful people, amen? Nothing warms our heart like worship. Nothing warms our heart like worship, and yet oftentimes we neglect to even go to the place where we're gonna do it. I wanna encourage you to make Sunday mornings a priority in your life. I know I'm quite literally preaching to the choir here. You guys are here, you're like, I'm doing that, okay? Leave me alone. But come, come back next week and the week after that. There's, there's something in our culture and our world that has made this gathering, the Sunday morning gathering, less and less and less of a priority. And I, as, as kindly as I can say this, stop it. Stop putting other things above gathering with the people of God. It's, every, every Sunday morning is not like some earth-shattering experience, okay? Can we just all talk about that. And our, our culture teaches us that everything should be awesome all the time or else it's not worth our time. That's not how church works. The gathering of the saints weekly to sit under the teaching of God's word, to sing to the Lord, to encourage one another, to pray together in very small ways keeps our hearts on track. It keeps them pointed to the Lord. And so make this a priority above all other priorities in your life. I'd also encourage you to get in a group Find other Christians. If you don't have other Christians in your life to walk with you, it's going to be really hard to worship the Lord. I'd encourage you to spend time in God's Word regularly and let it point you back to Jesus. This season's a great time to do that. Grab a good Advent devotional and dive into it over the next few weeks. Do you struggle to worship? I get it. Life is hard. We're forgetful people. Life can be painful. But I want to encourage you, go back to the basics. Look past your pain and your circumstances. Look past your busyness and forgetfulness. And there you'll find a Savior who loves you and has died for you and has given you the greatest gift of all. And that will stir your heart to worship. Finally, proclamation. The second half of Mary's song here is her telling what God has done, declaring what the Lord has done. John the Baptist's purpose in life ends up being to point people to Jesus. He starts doing that even doing backflips in the womb. Those who really believe the good news of the gospel, they'll tell other people about it. And this is a natural response. Just as much as worship is a natural response to the gospel, so is proclamation, a natural response to the gospel that we often push aside. Let me tell you, there's nothing more uh, dependable than a new parent's social media activity going through the roof, right? Like when someone has a kid, I guarantee you, they're gonna post pictures of that baby on the internet over and over and over and over again. They could have been logged off of Facebook for months. That kid shows up, it's picture time. Why? Because everything has changed in their life and they've got the best news in the world and they just cannot keep it in, right? You remember the joy when your child arrived, the first one? We post a lot less for the second and third one, I can tell you. We're a little busy. The joy that comes when that child arrives. You can't help but tell other people about it. How much more that Jesus has arrived, bringing with him salvation for all of us. The natural response is to tell people about about that. And yet for many Christians, we have no trouble believing, we have no trouble worshiping, but we have a lot of trouble with proclamation, with telling people about Jesus. Why is that? Really quickly as we close, a couple of reasons. One, really just one reason, two different manifestations of it. We're scared, aren't we? Can we, I mean, that's, uh, uh, again, this is a royal we, this is me too. We're scared of what's gonna happen if we tell people about Jesus. We're scared it's gonna make things awkward and uncomfortable, and it's gonna be real weird, right? Right? We, we used to only talk about uh, gator football and now we're talking about Jesus. This is awkward, right? We're, we're, we're scared of that. We're also scared, anybody else scared they don't know enough when they go to share their faith? They're like, I don't, I don't know what to say. I don't know. They're gonna have questions that I don't know the answer to. Let me go ahead and spoil these fears for you really quickly. They are absolutely gonna come true. Both of them are. Absolutely. They're well-founded fears. It will be awkward to talk about something you've never talked about with a person. It will be awkward and uncomfortable to talk about Jesus. So you're correct in being afraid of that. Let me tell you something else. When you start talking to them about Jesus, you won't know all the answers, I promise. I won't know all the answers. Nobody knows all the answers. There's no way to anticipate every question someone's gonna have and have chapter and verse for every single answer. You're just not gonna do it. And so are you scared to share your faith with other people? Good. Means you have a real understanding of what's going to happen. But let me tell you this what do we do with those fears? Should we let them keep us from telling someone about Jesus? Should we let them keep us from proclaiming the goodness of what he's done? No. Let's do a little thought experiment. What happens if you tell someone who Jesus is and what he's done in your life? What's the worst that could happen? It could be weird be uncomfortable. In some extreme circumstances, you might lose a friend or a relative. Although in our culture here, that doesn't happen a whole lot. It could be real consequences. You know what else might happen, though? They might put their faith in Jesus and live with him for eternity. It might change their marriage forever for the good. It might totally change the trajectory of their kids and their family. As they put their faith in Christ. What happens if we share? We might be a little uncomfortable, but we also might change eternity for somebody. How do we grow in this? How do we get better in this? I want to encourage you first to know how Jesus has changed your own life. Know your own story. You don't have to know all the answers and all the Bible verses, but if you are prepared to tell people what Jesus has done for you, people will listen. People are pretty selfish, I've found out. They actually only want to know what Jesus can do for them. They don't typically care about all the theology and that kind of stuff. And so if you start by telling them what Jesus has done for you, people will listen. I'd also encourage you to start small. Take small steps. Even just inviting someone to church while it can be scary and intimidating and uncomfortable, that small step can train your body, train your mind, train your mouth to have spiritual conversations to point people to Jesus. This season, this time of year, is an incredible time of year to do that. People are willing to come to church now more than ever this time of year to celebrate Christmas. Grab an invite card, they're in the back, and invite someone. Just take that small step forward and see what the Lord may do with that. Church family, Christmas time, this Advent season, it's a celebration of Jesus showing up into our world to save us. It's the best news that's ever happened, but it's news that demands a response. And the response that it demands is worship from our hearts and a testifying, a proclamation to others of what God has done. So my question as we close is how will you respond to Jesus coming into the world? First, respond with belief. If you're not a Christian, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, today can be the day. You can have your sins washed away. You can have your future in heaven secured. If you do believe, your response is certainly worship, and we're going to do that in just a moment as we close in song. And lastly, let's be a church on mission, eager to share this good news with any and all who will listen. I'm going to close in prayer. The band's going to come back up, and we're going to finish a song. And during that song, I and maybe some of our other pastors will be up front. And if you need to pray about any of these three issues, we would love to help you we'd love to pray with you and pray for you. If if you're struggling with belief, we'd love to pray with you about that. If you're struggling, uh, your heart is struggling to worship, we'd love to help you with that. If you're struggling to live out your faith and appoint people to Jesus, we'd love to help you with that as well. If you've got someone in your life who's far from the Lord and you want us to pray for him, whatever, it doesn't matter, any and all things, I would encourage you to just come forward. There's nothing special or magical or mystical about coming forward at church, but there is There's something about taking a physical step towards God that changes our hearts and helps us. It gives us courage and it gives us encouragement. And so if you would like to, we're available for that during that time. Let's pray together, church. Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you for the truth of the gospel. I thank you that you sent Jesus for us to save us, to redeem us, to give us a future and a hope. And Lord, would you help us to believe it's true? Even those of us who may struggle with doubt sometimes, like the man who met Jesus who said, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Would you do that for us today? Would you strengthen our faith in you? And then as you do that, would you help us to respond to you in worship and adoration? Would you help us to respond by telling others this great news that we have found? We love you, Lord. We thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.